You know, if the state of Texas could become a man, think about that. If the state of Texas could become a man, I propose that he would be a lot like my grandfather on my mama's side. My mama grew up in Austin, Texas. And uh, my papa, as we called him, was as tall as the Texas sky, with eyes that twinkled like the stars at night, that are big and bright, deep in the heart of Texas. Um, Papa was a man of few words, but when he did speak, his words dripped with a Texas drawl and had the authority of a Texas Ranger's badge. When he spoke, you listened. And uh, he was rarely seen without his old ratty Texas Longhorns ball cap that uh, nestled quietly on top of his uh, thinning silver hair. Uh, even when he wore a suit to my wedding, he had his Texas Longhorns ball cap on his head, much to my grandmother's uh, dismay. So to this little old Carolina kid, Papa was as legendary as the Alamo and as rugged as the, Aust as the hill country of Texas. Now, part of Papa's legend, and the part that I remember the most, was his way with fish. Today we might call him a fish whisperer. Um, he, just, he just had this amazing way with fish. It seemed like he could catch anything that moved underwater. Um, and uh, he wore this hat back in the 70s when he uh, attempted to fish around the world. He took boat after boat and went all the way down through the Panama Canal and over to the Pacific, got as far as Easter, Easter Island in the Pacific, and uh, got homesick, so he came back home. He did not finish his fishing trip, but this was the hat he wore on that fishing trip. Um, all kinds of lore that goes with his legend. Um, he went to Hawaii once on vacation and decided to go deep sea fishing. And he was in his 70s at the time. And he caught, out of season, an eight-foot-long blue marlin that weighed 491 pounds. Out of season. And he's catching fish like this. Um, he just seemed to know where the fish would be and how to get them. Uh, when I was a kid, um, I once went fishing with him in the, Gulf, in the Gulf of Mexico on his little boat, and uh, he took us out and tied us up to some abandoned old uh, oil rigs, and uh, you just looked down in that clear blue water, and the fish were swarming. It's like he had called them to us. Um, you just... All we had to do was drop our line in the water, red snapper, red snapper, red snapper, until the boat was seemingly full of them. Um, it was amazing. So, of course, I thought of Paw Paw this week as I worked on this sermon uh, because, uh, you see, my, my Paw Paw was not a professional fisherman, though he could have been. He was a teacher. He was a high school chemistry teacher. And, uh, in fact, uh, I write my sermons on Papa's 
roll-top desk that he used to prepare his lessons. Um, so in Luke chapter 5, if you'll turn there, and verses 1 to 11, we're going to see another teacher who happens to be an excellent fisherman. And you guessed it, his name is Jesus. So if you'll turn with me to Luke chapter 5, let's stand together and let's watch what happens when Jesus goes fishing. Here's the word of the God who loves you from Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down, and he taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, would you uh, come by your spirit and would you catch us up in the net of your glory and grace as we look at Jesus together this morning. We ask in his name. Amen. Please be seated. So let's get right to the punchline of this story. And here it is. When Jesus goes fishing, he turns the people he catches into people catchers. Okay? When Jesus goes fishing, he turns the people he catches into people catchers. And so those would be our two questions this morning. First, what is a people catcher? Or is... Uh, You've probably heard of fisher of men. Um, what is a people catcher? And secondly, how does Jesus catch people? So let's start with question number one. What is a people catcher? Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. Now, we, we usually read this account of Jesus calling his disciples to be fishers of men as as a call to evangelism. And for these men, it was just that. It was a call for them to be evangelists. But underneath that external call to herald Jesus to people, 
was an internal call to have the heart of Jesus for people. Because if you, can't have, if you don't have the heart of Jesus for people, how will you ever have the motivation to herald Jesus to people? So this morning, we're going to focus more on what Jesus does um, that, to make the kind of heart that heralds need to have. Um, and I was struck as I looked at this. I'd never thought about this before, but one, one commentator mentioned this, and then a friend of mine I was having a conversation with mentioned this. Think about what professional fishermen did. They killed fish so that they themselves could live. Okay? Simple enough. They killed fish so that they and their families could consume the fish and live and so that they could sell the fish and make a living, right? And that was perfectly acceptable. That's, that's what a professional fisherman does. So in order for these men to feed their families, both physically and fiscally, fish had to die. Fish died so that these men could live. That's how they lived their lives. But what Luke wants, to, wants us to see, the Holy Spirit wants us to see through Luke in his entire gospel, is that when Jesus makes people catchers, he transforms them from men and women who use others so that they can live for themselves into men and women who die to themselves so that others can live. A fisher of people is one who no longer lives on others, but lives for others. Fishermen have a distinct odor on them. You ever been around a professional fisherman? And this, this dying, that so, dying so that others may live, that smells like Jesus. Dying so that others may live smells like Jesus. Dying so that others can live is how Jesus goes fishing. And this dying so that others may live becomes the mark of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We see this uh, mark in Jesus' teaching and in the teaching and the lives of the apostles. First, Jesus is going to describe this Dying so that others can live later in Luke 9. We'll get to it at some point. Um, first, Jesus speaks in Luke 9 of his own dying that others may live. He says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So Jesus dies and is raised so that others, we, may have life. And immediately after he said that, he said to all the disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So Jesus himself not only talks about his own dying so that others can live, but he invites his disciples to be like him in dying so that others may live. And Peter 
we know Simon Peter, who was on that boat that day, learned that very way of life. He learned how to take that smell upon himself. In 1 Peter 4, Peter says this, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So, die so that others can live. And we know that Paul learned how to die so others may live. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, but we have this treasure, gospel, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And here's, here's the dying part. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Listen to what he says next. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. And here's how he sums it all up. So, death is at work in us, but life in you. There it is. That's what it means to smell like Jesus, the fisherman who died so that others may live. Death doesn't work in us, but life in you. Friends, that's the heart of a people catcher. I die so that you can live. Is this what people smell on us? We die so that others may live. Peter would also, in that same letter, 1 Peter, write about the impact that a person who smells like their suffering Savior would have on the people around them. Listen to what he says. This is 1 Peter 3. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? In other words, if you're zealous for giving life to others. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Friends, do we live such a Jesus-shaped life of dying so that others may live that it causes people to ask us, what's the reason for the hope you have? What's the reason for the hope you have? What kind of hope do you have that would make you die so that others can live? Sinclair once spoke, Sinclair Ferguson once spoke powerfully about this. Now, this is a longer quote, but it's so rich and so um, 
helpful that I, I want to share it with us. And he's talking about what Peter's talking about here. Sinclair Ferguson said, In the New Testament, there's hardly any instruction whatsoever about how to be a witness. And by contrast, in our evangelism manuals, all the emphasis lies on how can you as an individual be a witness? And here are the questions you need to learn to ask in order to be a witness. And he says, now what's that a sign of? That's a sign of the bankruptcy of the church. Because, he says, when the church is full of the power of the Holy Spirit, what happens is what Simon Peter describes in 1 Peter chapter 3, that you're in a situation that you need to be ready to give an answer for the hope that's in you. When the church fails to be the church, then individual Christians need to learn how to ask questions that will make ungodly people think about godly things. But when the church is the church, the people of God simply need to answer the questions that the very character of the church is prompting the world to ask. And that's what we desperately need, he says. That, that is perhaps the single greatest need we have as a community of God's people. That there might be something about the very atmosphere of our fellowship together in the unity of the bonds of the Holy Spirit that makes people ask the question, where on earth or in heaven did that come from? And he says, if they're not compelled to ask that question about our church, it's an almost certain sign that there's very little heavenly about our community. That we don't smell like Jesus. So friends, this is, this, is, this is hard stuff. Does our church smell like Jesus, the original people fisher? Do we smell like a people who are willing to die to our wants, our wishes, and our wealth so that others can find life in the net of our fellowship? Friends, Jesus caught us. He caught us to make us a dying church. Jesus loves dying churches. He loves churches that die. So that others can live. And before we could be a people who catch people, we have to be a people who are willing to die so that others have life. Now, Mark tells the same story um, in chapter 1 of his book. And you'll remember that, that Mark's gospel is really Peter's version of the story of Jesus. Peter uh, is the one who informed Mark, and Mark wrote down 
Peter's observations about the life of Jesus. And in Mark's version of the story, we get a fuller version of what Jesus said to Peter and his friend that day on the Sea of Galilee. Mark says that Jesus said, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Apparently, Jesus is the one who makes us people catchers. I will make you become. And friends, if, if he's in charge of the process, you can guarantee that it's going to happen. He who began a good work in us will complete it. But also, we hear in the way Jesus said that, that it's a process of becoming. I will make you become. It takes time. It takes training and learning which is what the word disciple means, is a learner, an apprentice. So how does Jesus do this? And, and by the way, you look at the life of Peter and you see that it took a lot of time and a lot of training before he got to Acts chapter 2, where he preached the gospel and 3,000 fish jumped in the net. A lot had to happen in Peter's life between this moment and that one. So how does Jesus do this? How does he take a heart like mine that is naturally turned in on itself, a heart that's prone to let death be at work in others so that life is at work in me? How does he change that kind of heart into one who, like Peter, will say, I will leave everything to follow and to become like the one who gave his life so that others would live? How does he transform a heart like mine into one like Paul who says, death is at work in me so that life will be at work in you? Well, this brings us back to the other question I have for us this morning. How does Jesus catch people? It'll give us some insight into how he transforms them into people catchers. So there's more, there's more here than I have time to get into in this story, but, but quickly, watch how Jesus goes fishing for Peter. First, Jesus, as it were, lets down his net underneath Peter with his teaching about the good news of the kingdom of God. Where's Peter? Peter and his friends are within earshot of Jesus as he's teaching the crowd on the shore. They're over there washing their nets after a Long, hard night of work trying to fish. But he's close enough <laughs> to the net of the gospel that Jesus is preaching to hear it. He's swimming nearby. Well, then Jesus begins to pull his net in a little closer to Peter by asking him to do a simple favor for him. Hey, uh, Peter, would you mind letting me use your boat as a pulpit? <laughs> Now Peter really had to listen to what Jesus was saying because now Jesus is in his boat. The net is starting to close in on Peter. By the way, the word that Peter uses, I mean that Luke uses, um, is that uh, they enclosed a, a large number of fish in the net. 
That enclosing means to hem in. It, all, it, it can mean to imprison the fish. And so Jesus is starting to hem Peter in, close in on him. Well, then Jesus is going to pull the net a little more forcefully now and start to pull Peter in even closer, asking Peter to trust him, trust him with something more than his boat. I imagine that Jesus may have said it like this, Peter, I know you're a professional fisherman. I know you've toiled all night and caught nothing. I know you just finished washing your nets, but I want you to trust me. Put out into the deep water and let down those freshly washed nets for a catch. Yes, I know. It's the worst time of day to catch fish. Yes, I'm a carpenter and you're a professional fisherman. But if you've been listening to what I've been teaching, and if you've been watching how with just a word I can rebuke demons and diseases, can you trust what you know about my authoritative words? Can you trust what you know about my authoritative words? And in verse 5, Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But here, I love this. But at your word, I will let down the nets. The nets has got him. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their other partners in the other boat to come help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. Now, Peter is caught not only by Jesus' words, but by the display of the glory and grace of Jesus right before his eyes. How did he see his glory? He saw his glory in this miraculous dominion Jesus has over the fish of the sea. Once again, the Holy Spirit through Luke is showing us that Jesus is the second Adam who has come to do what the first Adam wouldn't do. Remember, God said, God made Adam and Eve and said, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over these animals and the birds of the airs and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now, we don't know what kind of fisherman Adam was, but we do know he failed to keep that creeping liar of a serpent out of the garden. And Jesus, coming to do what the professional fisherman, fisherman Peter could never have done on his best day of fishing, is a beautiful picture of Jesus coming to do what Adam couldn't and wouldn't do. Jesus came to do what you and I could never do on our best day of living. He came to have dominion over sin and Satan and suffering and death. And that glory was so overwhelming to Peter, he felt hemmed in like a fish in a net. Depart from me. I'm a sinful man, O oh Lord. 
can't, I can't bear this. But at the very same time that Peter was caught in the glory of Jesus, he was caught in the grace of the overwhelming goodness of the catch of the fish. The nets were breaking and the boats were sinking. Um, scholars estimate that by figuring out the kind of fish that was probably in uh, the Sea of Galilee at the time and the size of the boats and how many of those fish it would take to make a boat sink, they estimate, estimate that each boat was overwhelmed by about a ton of fish, which would have equaled about 500 fish. Which is probably why Luke makes the point to say that Peter fell down at Jesus' knees. They were up to their knees in fish. And Peter, Peter couldn't see Jesus' feet because of all the fish. And, and just think about what two tons of fish would do for their families. Peter was caught in the net of Jesus' overwhelming generosity. And Jesus didn't have to do two tons of fish. Just a, a decent night's catch would have been enough. But he goes way beyond what we expect. And just as Peter was rightly recognizing his sinfulness and utter, utter unworthiness in the presence of a glorious and gracious God, Jesus gave Peter a word of grace. Verse 10, he said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. Jesus is saying, Peter, there's no need to fear. I didn't catch you to kill you but to give you life like you've never known it before. I caught you to make you become something you are not. I caught you to make you someone who will leave everything behind if I ask you to. Someone who will deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Someone who will become like me by dying to yourself so that others will have life in me. And we know from John 21 and from church tradition that Peter died by handing over his hands to be bound. Jesus told him that's how it would happen. And he would be led away to a place he didn't want to go. And church tradition tells us that he was crucified and that Peter, in his humility, demanded that he not be crucified, crucified upright like his Savior, Crucify me upside down. So the one who is hemmed in by the grace of God was hemmed in in his death for that Jesus. So, friends, how does Jesus do this in us? Each Sunday, we come here to get caught in the net of this glorious and gracious Jesus. Our worship is designed to do this very thing, for us to come and to see him, 
in the call to worship and in the singing and in the songs and in the confession of faith to see him high and lifted up and then, like Peter, to come and kneel at his knees, (laughs) at his feet, and confess, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. And then in the assurance of pardon, we hear Jesus say, don't fear, don't fear. And then he tells us how he's going to make us people catcher. We come to hear the word of good news about how Jesus obeyed his father's command to put out deeper and drop the net of his flesh while the father drew fish to him. And what did Jesus say? At your word, I will do it. And because he obeyed, we got caught. That's how Jesus goes fishing. He gives his life so that those he catches will live. And we come to see in this supper the overwhelming grace that Jesus gives us sinners. This this bread and this cup, they're small, they're meager, they seem very little. This doesn't seem like a boat full of fish. (laughs) But what this little piece of bread and this little sip of uh, cup represent are an abundant grace that we've been given in the body and blood of Jesus that this room cannot contain. There's no way that we could express with bread and cup the depth and the overwhelming love that we've been given in Christ. But we come to, to remember it. And we, we look to them as... Um, as a ton of God's goodness that so fills our hearts that we sink under the sheer abundance of his grace for us. When we come to this table, we should hear him say to us, do not fear. Don't don't be afraid. I am making you new. I am making you into something you were not before. I am making you become a people catcher like me. So friends, so what? (laughs) Jesus calls us away from our vocation of living off the lives of others to his vocation of dying so that others will live. This doesn't mean you have to leave your profession to become a professional fisherman, although some of you would probably enjoy that. If you had the bumper sticker that says, I'd rather be fishing. In other words, you don't don't have to become a preacher or an evangelist. Um, Paul said in 2 Thessalonians that um, we command and encourage people in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Not everyone was expected to do what the original disciples did, and and their whole life was about preaching the gospel full-time. Even Paul was a tent maker, and he provided for himself as he preached the gospel. But the truth is, wherever God has put you, whatever vocation he's given you, there's a deeper calling that should give everything you do 
the smell of a fisher of people, the smell of Jesus, who is willing to leave everything to lay down his life to give you life. That's what the heart of a people catcher looks like. And so we have to ask ourselves, no matter our vocation, will the people who live in the places where we live and worship and work and play, will they smell the world's greatest people catcher on us? They will only if he lives in us. My grandfather was a master fisherman. Um, And there are some master sportsmen that you can learn skills from, but still never have their God-given gift for the sport. I've got his blood in my veins, but friends, I don't have his fish-whispering blood. My grandfather could teach me a lot of things about how to fish, but he could never give me his heart for fishing or his innate ability to be a fish whisperer. He couldn't do it. But Jesus can and does give his heart for fishing and his power for fishing to his people. He moves inside us by his spirit to do this. We have the fish whisperer living in us. Our part is to listen to him when he says, Go over there and drop your nets and respond with a heart that says, at your word, I'll do it. May we be a church like that. Father, uh, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you would take the likes of us, sinners, who, who dare not even be in your presence, and you say, Don't be afraid. I've come to change you. I've come to make you like me. And thank you for this table where we see, where we see in vivid color the heart of Jesus, the fisherman, who gave his life to give us life. We thank you for him. Amen.